Oh, I've, I've blown it here. I could have I could have used my gingerbread biscuit from Marks and Spencer's as the food, and I've I've eaten it. <laughs> you can still use it for the food if you want. Yeah, but it wasn't even a particularly good gingerbread biscuit. Aren't was, gingerbread biscuits right. kind of limited to pre-Christmas? Are you allowed to eat well, them? No. What are you talking about? No, gingerbread is year-round treat, Hugh Ferris. No, but the... in the shape of a man. Is it in the shape of a man or is it just a no, gingerbread it the... biscuit? It was in the shape of a bee. For he did what? say gingerbread biscuit rather than gingerbread man. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was a gingerbread bee. What, what? As in the shape of a buzzing bee or a letter bee? Uh, buzzing bee. It wasn't really in the shape of a buzzing bee. It was a sort of theoretical conceptualization of a bee with a with some black and yellow wings what's is it so much you're on. missing you're missing manchester so much that you yeah, I don't buy know if your I treats Man- in the shape of the, the manchester worker bee i don't know if i i don't know if manchester can lay claim to being like the home of bees hang on a minute you're gonna get a tattoo on your ankle of a bee because you love manchester so much i was gonna get in fact i might still get a tattoo of a bee to be fair because i do love manchester a lot but i don't think it was ever going to be on your ankle it wasn't on my ankle it's a little dolphin (laughs) to go with your little chain (laughs) (laughs) my ankle lit my ankle is it ankle lit or an anklet an anklet 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 um but I know I'm just uh, that's fine, and it's the badge of the city, not a problem. But I don't know if all bees are like whenever you see a bee, do you think, oh, Manchester? Well, I, I just assume that it's on some sort of excursion from Manchester. Man- Manchester, because you think all bees, yeah. I don't think any of this is true. No, I think I think bees all gather in the morning and they get their assignments given out, just like in Superstore at the beginning of every episode of Superstore, which is back on Netflix. Where you'll be pleased to. No, oh, I've already didn't... don't worry. I've already watched. You already binged it. Binge it? The... That's fine. So yeah, no, I've been. I finished it ages ago. I, it it was, season it, six. It was, yes, it was on ITV two. Oh, was it now? I didn't. Mm. Know that. That's terrible. I'm not uh, a real fan. But you, yeah, just like in the, think... in the in the morning, the, the worker bees get their get their assignments. They all start in Manchester and then they go out to get honey from the whole world and then they fly back and then. Put Do you them think in it's bats? like golden golden retrievers who all yeah, come from stick. one? Like no golden, no golden, golden retrievers were all bred initially in this one castle in Scotland, and now every year they gather like three hundred golden retrievers at that castle as a sort of spiritual pilgrimage back to their their spiritual home. Do you think Sounds bees like are like that? Weird because master race thing that you've got going on there. No, it's golden retrievers. This sounds like, imagine... a lot like a dog food commercial. Are you sure you? <laughs> Oh, it would be. It, would, it was, on, it was on ITV two during the ad break between between Superstore it, segment. It would make an amazing dog food commercial. No, that's true. Golden retrievers were bred initially in some place in Scotland, and now they get lots of golden retrievers back every year. It's Is really it, nice. I'd look. It's literally the thing I would like to do the most in the entire world. And yet you just didn't be surrounded buy by hundreds of golden retrievers. A golden no, retriever when you had the chance. They molt. There's a lot of hoovering. This is Set Piece Many, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. I'm Hugh Ferris. Joining me are Rory Smith, Captain Toad, and Stephen Wyeth, Gold Cooper, free running. Um, the food is a gingerbread bee, which has been discussed far too much already. The football also is eaten. And eaten far too quickly. Uh, the football is something like this. Hang on a minute. Syria is exciting. More exciting than anywhere else, but I thought it was an immutable law that the Italian league was dull and defensive. You can get in touch with the podcast. If you, for example, have heard the word incommutable and thought it might work in that <laughs> where I used immutable, you'll be pleased to know that you can let us know via setpiecemenu at gmail.com. It is on the cutting room floor. Uh, Robbie Wells, not walls, not nor harms, emails in response to SPM 263 about the Christmas schedule. Good day, fine fellows. I'm writing to you from an even more exclusive group than SPM Buffaloes. Those of your listenership 
that are not buffaloes. I believe there's about three of us now, possibly all called Robbie. Uh, that kind of sounds like a... Oh, I don't know. It's a pitch, isn't it? It's a pitch. Bit of a pitch. It's, anyway. a, little bit, it's a little bit more clever than uh, Ahmed was last week, mine. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Anyway, I thought I'd share my story about the time just before Christmas that I replied to a Stan Collymore tweet in which he justified the Christmas fixtures by showing that the first Christmas Day game was back in 1889, which then led to teams playing on both the 25th and 26th, and in some cases by 1940, playing two games on the same day. In the words of Stan, that was with, quote, 11 players, but now it's apparently insane with 25 players. Unlimited academy, presumably he knows something I don't, says Robbie, and a day in between as well, end quote. I kindly pointed out to Stan that although in favour of festive football, it's a bit disingenuous to compare the game back then to what it is now. I then went about my Christmas shopping and thought no more of it. When I opened Twitter later on that day, I got a glimpse into Rory's every day. I had opened the door to the most belligerent group of blokes with flags in their handles I'd ever seen. The arguments coming back at me were absurd and brilliant all at once. I particularly enjoyed the several nobodies claiming that they used to play two or three games within four days whilst eating kebabs and drinking beer, so the elite athletes with sports scientists should have no problem. I know it's Twitter and should be taken with a pinch of salt, but I could never imagine people being that angry at the thought of their favourite players getting fatigue and muscle injuries at the end of December being taken away. In the sepia image words of Doug Stanhope, tradition is just dead people's baggage. Stop carrying it. Also, just on a brief side tangent regarding Rory's three-nager problem, my mum recently reminded me of something I told her when I was about nine that I think Rory could relate to now. Evidently, mid-argument, I stopped my mother and said, Mum, I don't know why you're arguing because I wouldn't say it unless I knew it was right. I now have an eight-year-old who is as, if not even more, pompous than me. What goes around comes around, I would suggest. Once again, many thanks for continuing to make the best podcast around. Cheers from Robbie Wells. I do not like stories about children being difficult when they are older than four, because it makes me dread what is to come. You're going to have to cut me off pretty soon then. <laughs> yes, I know. Well, well, my well, life. <laughs> Steve tried to give me some solace a couple of weeks ago and it didn't work at all. It had the, precisely the opposite effect so, to the extent that I started thinking, is there a way in which I could take on another job so I could send him to boarding school? Ed, not Steve. The, um, <laughs> Steve doesn't need to go to boarding school anymore. The, um, I don't know, hang a couple on, of nights I, decent sleep would be welcome. The, Do you get decent night's sleep at boarding school? Maybe. Nope. Then? Probably not. Not if Ed's going to be there. Not if Ed's there. It's interesting, isn't it? That that sports like that that well, I well, a that I used to play, so they should be able to is 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 a total misunderstanding of the relative levels of ability involved. Well, the also beer and beer and kebab league games notoriously as intense as the Premier League. English football is so intense. I think the clue might be if you're drinking loads of beer and eating loads of kebabs and still playing in inverted commas, maybe you're not running around very much. And but the other thing is the comparison with with his, with with history is, and it's until relatively recently they were playing the twenty sixth and the twenty seventh. But it's like saying looking at like an like, like an F one car that where some sort of tiny component, like tiny space age component, has gone wrong, and saying, well, do you know what? The Ford Model T never broke down. They're trying to do different things. People, I agree with Robbie. People, are, he should. Robbie should be made a buffalo for accepting the basic premise that people on Twitter with flags in their handles are idiots. <laughs> if that's all it took, everybody would be buffaloes. We'd be buffaloes. Uh, Robbie, it has been decreed at least by Rory that you are our, our, our newest buffalo on account of the fact that you didn't ask directly. Can we get a quorum for that? Do we all agree that Robbie's a, bu- a buffalo? 
He gets it for the subtlety with which he nudged us in that direction. Oh, really? Okay. So there is, there is nuance still yeah. in Seppi's menu. Ibrahim Babika is next. Dear Fraser, Niles, Martin and Daphne. My girlfriend is half French and half Austrian, meaning that when I recently moved to Hong Kong with two weeks notice and would miss her birthday, I struggled to think what I could buy for her. Then it hit me. What else could my girlfriend who speaks French, German and English want? What else would feed the desires of all three languages? What else would rank above all that is in existence and that will ever be the answer an spm multilingual squirrel t-shirt bought from t public of course <laughs> uh, he sent a picture of the uh the, the squirrel uh, t-shirt you can get via tpublic.com just search for seppi's menu keep up the phenomenal work love the pod don't worry the t-shirt was not the only thing i got her but i did end up buying three of them uh, from ibrahim babika who's in hong kong p.s i have come to love the word so much that i cannot help but say or shout eichhornchen to every German-speaking person I meet, regardless if I know them or not, or if I am in a nightclub or queuing for a COVID test. Uh, that's from Ibrahim Babika, who via Tee Public bought the Einhorchen t-shirt, uh, which you'll find under multilingual squirrel if you just search for it. I had the, um, the same thing with the one word of ancient Greek that I remember from my education, uh, which is eleftheria, which means freedom and is not an appropriate thing to say when you come to the end of a taxi ride. <laughs> As you're charging through Athens Airport. <laughs> yep, Smates has sent us a thank you note and what he describes as a misguided attempt at, Rory, you'll be pleased to hear, poetry. No. Dear Dave, Brad, Max and Penny. You can imagine my joy at being named a buffalo a few months ago. He wasn't asked. Somebody asked for him on his behalf, which is another clever way of doing it, which was successful, even if it was on the back of a very dodgy pay for play scheme or ra rather merchandise for buffalo status scheme by friend and countryman uh, David van der Heer. As a humble fellow broadcast professional, I am always thrilled when you guys mentioned the broadcast media side of football and was over the moon when you recently heaped praise on EVS operators in particular. EVS operators that you may remember uh, who do the replays and very skillfully. It is true. We are all amazing, he says. Broadcast media is not exactly a pat on the back kind of business. Perfection is expected and therefore hardly ever noteworthy. So it was incredible to get a shout out on my favourite pod. I've wanted to thank you for a while now. And when I heard you express your dismay at the level of poetry coming from my fellow Buffaloes and listeners, I jumped at the chance. Over the summer, I worked on the Daily Euros programme and had not one but two VT packages go out on Dutch national television, accompanied by my own attempt at poetry. One in Dutch, about Mats Hummel's tackle on Kylian Mbappe, and one in English, meant to hype the final between Eng England and Italy, which I would like to share with you now. I've included the VT package he has, it was on a link which I wasn't allowed access to, so I've not been able to watch it yet, I'm sorry, uh, which I had voiced by BBC cameraman and colleague Jeff Kay, or perhaps you can have Steve read it. And then he has sent the lines for his VT, bigging up the England-Italy game before it happened. Keep up the amazing pod, says Europe. Stephen, over to you. When football's home opens its doors, be welcome one, be welcome all. Where once the magic Magyars roamed, and thousands roared when Jeff Hurst scored that dagger forth. Where men are forged and legends born, of golden goal and Wembley tour, where all of those who came before would give it all for just once more. Where fate has different things in store, be ready one, be ready all, football's home opens its doors. That's, that's very good. Is it for good. me or you? Uh, both. 
Uh, that's very good. Particularly impressive, obviously, because that is not his first language. That is amazing. Um, still poetry, bit of a shame. Uh, would, would really like to hear Steve read the Dutch one. <laughs> yes, he hasn't said no that, problem. unfortunately. And I'm also particularly interested at, at how, how the uh, final was seen before it happened and how perhaps some of those words might have been taken yeah. literally by a gentleman <laughs> trying to light a flare in his ass. Uh, cor- correspondence, poetry, and indeed voiceover scripts of any kind and indeed any language to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Now, if you've been a listener since SPM1, then first of all, hi, mum, because uh, that might be just the only person. Oh, but if it's not just her, then it's my dad too. So. Hi both. Uh, If it's not just them, you'll remember that we started this whole palaver by asking about whether the Premier League is the best league in the world. It's the kind of nebulous question that ensures that we don't have to arrive at an answer and there's therefore been one that we've returned to at least indirectly on many an occasion. The whole point is that the branding has been driven home so successfully for it to be an almost universally accepted point to the extent that if there's any evidence to the contrary, it will be buried under the Premier League's PR juggernaut. Even if we look a little wider, we might consider Real Madrid and Barcelona presence in Spain, making La Liga the most natural challenger, or even the fact that Bundesliga teams cannot defend, being that league's greatest recommendation. So it is with surprise that we cast our eyes over to Italy, where football was last interesting when it was on Channel 4, and realise that, hell, Syria is pretty banging right now. Just imagine James Richardson saying that with an espresso and Corriere della Sport next to him. We are lucky here at SPM that we have Stephen Wyeth, noted BT Sport commentator of Italian football, and Rory Smith, noted Italophile. He once met Francesco Totti, don't you know? To provide exactly the sort of nuance and context that we've been forcing into your ears for more than 250 episodes. Italian football is exciting. Does not compute. Well, it's exciting because Juventus have gone off the boil. And that has presented a timely opportunity for one or two others to realise that that presents them with a chance of re-establishing themselves. And gloriously, that is happening with a vibrancy which I think we've seen for several seasons now from Napoli, more recently from the likes of Atalanta, and a little bit further down the food chain since they were promoted a few seasons ago, Sassuolo and I think as a result one or two others have realized that that's not a bad way about going about things and we're also in an era and and I'm sure Rory will expand on this when the quality of attacking talent in Italian football has come to the fore potentially at a time where they don't have the successes to the master craftsmen of the defensive dark arts if you consider that Chiellini and Bonucci were at the heart of the Italian defence for their Euro 2020 triumph at a combined age of 78, that lots of factors have come together to present this glorious opportunity for Italian football to be entertaining as royally. And and we're in for a, a fascinating title race in Serie A this season. We, we are recording this um, a week ahead of time, not to pull back the curtain too much, but we have, we have recently indulged ourselves, well, you, you two have, probably not me, um, in, in a thriller involving um, Juventus and Roma. How much of that, Rory, prompted this thought in your head? This is a traditional Rory Smith set-piece menu episode, workshop in a column. Thanks, everybody, for your help. The, you will not be credited. The, I think this is something that's been bubbling under for a while, that... And there's kind of two things. There's one element that I think is fairly obvious and doesn't require a huge amount of debate in my head because otherwise I'd have to rethink my column. 
and the other the, the kind of consequence of that is the bit that I think is really interesting. So I think Italy and Steve is better placed than me to to say this. I think Italy has for some time been probably the most exciting of the major leads in terms of unpredictability or well, in terms of a combination of unpredictability, quality, variety, like tactical variety, tactical novel- novelty and sheer unbridled chaos. I think its main rival for that is, has probably always been the Bundesliga. The Bundesliga has always been the mayhem league because nobody can defend and nobody tries. Um, set, what's made Serie A interesting is that I think there's been a, a, there's a little bit of that has crept in that no one can really defend anymore. Um, but there is there are more ways. The problem with the Bundesliga, this seems a bit dismissive and it's not meant to be because I love the Bundesliga, is that you basically get the same team playing each other constantly. Everybody plays basically the same way. Everyone has pretty much the same flaws. Everyone's very finely balanced, which means that most games are competitive and, yeah, could, could go either way, which is a brilliant thing for a league. That's what you want in a league. It's what we don't have in the Premier League, and it's what, over time, we will come to realise we need in the Premier League, I think. Serie A has got there through a different route. It doesn't have that same kind of tactical, cultural hegemony that you have in Germany. But I think for four or five years now, it's probably been the most intriguing of the major leagues in Europe because there are so many teams who play in so, so many different ways and there's so, so many contrasting styles and they are all flawed. And it was disguised a little bit by Juve kind of walking to the title nine years in a row. And Steve's totally right now that Juve have sunk back to the level of, of everybody else. It, it's given you this really kind of open league. I'm not sure, it, you, you can debate that. We, we, we say constantly that the lead that you think is the best is the one that you're emotionally involved in. That remains true. Lots of people will watch Serie A and see a game between Sassuolo and Napoli and be totally bored by it and assume that that means the football's crap or that it's not very interesting or that it's dour and defensive when in reality it means that they don't support either of those teams or care who wins Serie A and that's why they're not engaged with it. Um, And that's fine. That's the way life works. Not a problem. But I think what's really interesting is the fact that or what's really interesting to me is the fact that Serie A has changed so markedly from from what it was when it was the world's sort of foremost league, and yet the stereotype of it won't shift. And I think that's I find that really interesting because, and maybe I shouldn't. Maybe it's just because people don't watch Serie A anymore, so they have no idea what it's like. Well, hang on a minute. They means... watch it on BT Sport almost every time. But well, they, they won't they won't be watching it in the same numbers. Even with Steve Wyeth, <laughs> one time match of the day, first on match of the day commentator. Even with Steve Wyeth's talents to to draw them in, they won't be watching it as much as they will have been when they were when it was um, on Channel Four. And they won't be watching it as it, the numbers for the, the Serie A games on BT Sport will not touch what the Premier League games get. So there won't be as much awareness of the fact that these strange things these you get you do get these chaotic results. I've not actually seen it yet, but a BT running a, a like an Italian highlight show what they're doing is they are Galazzo live is which James Richardson presents alongside James Horncastle effectively is a half hour build up to the Sunday night match which rounds up all of the weekend's action up until that point and then leads into the big Sunday night game or as there was recently because there was a big Sunday early evening game as well into that that double header. So certainly some some resource and some focus has been pointed back towards Serie A. Now it is available again on 
mainstream British yeah. television because for the previous round of television rights, actually Serie A disappeared away from BT Sport and was was just on a streaming platform in terms of its availability to a UK audience. So it has actually, this ties in a little bit with it re-emerging from the shadows at an ideal time when it has become incredibly competitive so mm. the latter stages of Juventus's dominance weren't really available to a majority of, of the UK TV audience who, who might have a subscription for Sky or BT Sport. Now, suddenly, it's back again. It's getting a bit more profile at a serendipitous time yeah. of it being incredibly competitive and entertaining. So I think people have been drawn towards it. And this is something, a, a conversation I've had with other commentators who cover the European leagues is one of the great charms that Italian football has had since those Halcyon Channel 4 days is the evocative nature of the names involved. I think if you are a channel hopper looking for a live game, there's just something about a Milan, an Inter, a Juve, a Lazio, even down to a Genoa, a Sampdoria, which is much more likely to make you stop and watch than maybe some of the other contests from other non-Premier League big European divisions. It, 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 it just resonates a little bit more with people. There are, more, there are more teams that, are, that we think of as big in Italy but, than there are in other countries. Because of Channel 4. Because of so, Channel yes. 4. So, let, so let, let's, let's anchor it. No, in well, the, hang on. No. Well, well not, because, not just from my because point of, of view, because of Channel 4, because I was watching that kind of coverage. It was the first um, terrestrial coverage of any football after the Premier League went to Sky, the first division and then Premier League went to Sky. It had been, it had been the first football you could watch since the, the, the big match on ITV which had preceded the, the change to, to, to the Premier League. So it was, and it was, a you know, I was in my early teens. It was a huge, hugely big deal for a football fan suddenly being able to watch regular football. I, I almost... Hugh Ferris age... was in his early teens. Babylon Zoo were at the top of the charts. <laughs> Guess the year. Tab um, Clear was the hot new drink on supermarket shelves. Beppe Signori was scoring goals. Um, but there, His the... clothes were from Stolen by Ivor. <laughs> and and almost... <laughs> almost exclusively purple i think during that phase but there there is a there and, and it's about the emotional context yes and about the formative years that we've had a discussion about relating to, to world cups and other things in in recent weeks but that's that's why those teams mean something to me and if i was to see a genoa and sampdoria it wasn't genoa and sampdoria the first game there was it La, lazio sampdoria the, the first game that showed it was 2-2 it was it really exciting lazio. La, lazio sampdoria i think um 2-2 really exciting game and i was thinking this is great this is fantastic and so yes when you do have those those games that are available now on bt sport and you do think about those those teams mattering further down the league i think for me certainly it's because i have a reference point it's like if somebody grew up during the 80s and watched nfl like i did you see those teams then and then when it comes back or you get sky when you're older you your reference point is back to then when you watched it as a formative child yeah there is definitely that is definitely true for our generation so i think anyone who is over 34 33 34 as we record this um, obviously, the, these episodes are timeless, so they, those people might be seventy when they're listening <laughs> again. The um, the, the I, in many ways we, we we are making a podcast, but we're also making a time capsule. I think the yeah. So for our generation, <laughs> dig this one up in thirty years' time. Dig this one up, and we were watching. Uh, Kate and I watched a program about uh, it was on the BBC about Dubai. It was later criticised for not mentioning human rights once, which, to be fair, bit of an oversight. Uh, but there was a, one of the, the segments, it was a, like Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous type thing. 
and one of the segments was about a dog party where people had prepared lots of like dog friendly beetroot cakes and they were doing dog massages and there were dog cupcakes and dog champagne and I, and we both sort of looked at each other and said that there will come a point in 200 years time where historians are digging through the wreckage of our civilization and they come to a to a like a flash drive containing that episode and there'll be like lectures in space age universities about how the ancients used to throw parties with actual cakes for dogs and I feel a little bit like Set Piece Menu might have a role to play in those lectures about what brought society to its knees. Um, it was the, our the, conversation about the best type of goal. <laughs> <laughs> there'll be there'll be a whole like there'll be a whole like lecture on the course about how between 2010 and 2022, literally everyone on the planet did nothing but make podcasts. <laughs> They were so uh, busy banging on about how great it is when the ball goes in off the underside of the crossbar that nobody <laughs> did anything about coronavirus. <laughs> the, the, the rise of fascism in, <laughs> in Eastern Europe. And they were too, yeah, they were too busy wondering whether professional footballers enjoyed themselves. Yeah, the the um, I've completely forgot my point. Yeah, there's a, uh, on the radio the other day, I did the radio a couple of weeks ago with Chris Sutton, my usual sparring partner, and we talked about. Mark Chapman brought up Nottingham Forest, who had at that point just beaten Arsenal in the FA Cup. And Chapman sort of led in with, you know, I think that sen- that sentiment that everyone, it feels like everyone wants Forest back in the Premier League because it's important, you know, English football's better when there's a strong Nottingham Forest. And I agreed because that's, that's how I feel too, that I'd love Forest to be back and I'd love Coventry to be back because they are teams that I think of as being Premier League teams. But I then caveated it, which is never a great idea with Chris Sutton around. Um, with the fact that I'm, I'm really conscious that's probably a generational thing, yeah. that, that there will be 20-year-olds who have no idea why all these old men keep banging on about Nottingham Forest. Who cares? Like, they won the European Cup when Malmo made the final. Like, that, that, there is a generation to whom, maybe not 20-year-olds, they're, they're better than that, but, but to... <laughs> teenagers. To, kids, to teenagers, they will be like, well, this stuff, like, it does, that's ancient history. Like, that was, that was 40 years ago. Like, it was a long time. It was before I was born. But then I thought, as I, as I tend to kind of feed back my own performances on the radio, that maybe that's not quite right, that maybe there is something that will, will because we, we pass football down through, through law, L-O-R-E rather than L-A-W, and that's how you kind of absorb the game. It's how you come to know the game. It's why I find a lot of kind of conversations on Twitter really staggeringly, this is now, this is, proper soliloquy territory. I'm really sorry. I'm just living down to my stereotype. I saw this tweet the other day about an argument between a Man City fan and a Barcelona fan in which the Man City fan claimed that nobody wanted to play for Barcelona before 2008, as though Barcelona weren't a thing before Guardiola got there. And I sent it to a mate and just like, how, how young do you have to be? And my mate works at Liverpool. And I remember being at the Liverpool AC Milan Champions League game this year, or like this season, and his son, he was there with his son. And He's, I've never seen a kid as excited as his as his lad was when Paolo Maldini walks onto the pitch after the game. He, I mean, the kid who worships, worships Van Dijk and Salah and Mane and all these players and Thiago, but he could not believe he could see Paolo Maldini in the flesh. And my mate said, the thing is, it's not just to do with youth; it's to do with how you how you are presented with the game. Mm-hmm. That your that the law of the game is passed down to you by friends and family, and the people who introduce you and nurture your love of football. And I think that applies to Forest in the sense that 
there will be people who are 15, 18 who think Forest should be in the Premier League because they're a big club. And they'll think they're, they're a big club because they've been told about Brian Clough and John Robertson and all the others, Steve Chettle, by their parents and their grandparents. And I think that also applies. Here comes the point, seven minutes later. <laughs> that also applies to the Italian teams. So I think for our generation, it is Gazetta that did it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I think the reason that Gazetta and Football Italia Live became a thing was not just, it was obviously just Jazza and Platt went and they wanted to cover them. But it only worked because people knew about Italian football already. So I think that even now that Milan haven't been a force in Europe for 10 years at least, lots of people know Milan are a big club. And you, you'll see stupid conversations on Twitter about how they're irrelevant and stuff, but that is... That those those conversations should not be given a huge amount of weight. I think there is an understanding globally that Milan, AC Milan are a huge club, Inter are a huge club, Juve are a huge club, Roma are a huge club. And it feels to me like we feel like that way about quite a lot of Italian teams. That there might be some that, that Lazio maybe have a bit more resonance for our generation than they would do for others because Lazio aren't historically a great power in Italy. Mm. But the, it's a G- Gaza, you mean? Yeah, it is a Gaza and because, you know, because of that side that Ericsson built and Varane and Vieri and Crespo and all that and Nesta. And likewise, Palmer, we probably think of as being a big club when people of other generations probably wouldn't think Palmer a big club because that was that was Tanzi and it was Parmalat and it was Espria and Zola. But the Italian clubs are famous in a way that does not just apply to our generation. So I think Steve's right that when you're channel hopping through, you are more likely to stop on a Serie A game and think there is a big club playing in this than you are if you see Eintracht Frankfurt versus Bayer Leverkusen. Yeah. But that, that part of it is is the mystique that you've described. But to, to, to for a club to have mystique, they need to be at least partly accessible because otherwise they're just unknown. Oh, of course, yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. So, so you need so you need to have had that that little window into them to create. So they they need to be almost within touching distance. They they are over there. They are mystical. They are, ah, remember Sampdoria when, when David Platt played for them, things like that. But they, they can't be so far away that then they're not accessible because you've just got no reference point. So that, that's the role that channel four played for me. And it might've done for others, or it might've done for my generation that then passes it down via the law you're talking about to those who might be, might not have watched it because they weren't alive, but at least appreciate the role that those clubs and that program played in creating that touching distance, that that mystique, because they had access to it. And from a superficial point of view, it's how it looks. Italian football is so stylish. That's another reason why you might stop and absorb it for a little bit longer than a, another league that you haven't got an invested interest in. And and the kits, yes, they change every season like they do everywhere else, but they retain their heritage in a way that maybe other divisions can't. So, you know, I did Sampdoria a couple of weeks ago. You know, the blue Chachiati shirt of Sampdoria is as it was when we were watching Gazetta all those years ago. You know, the, the, the Milan clubs, you know, what they wear has, has barely changed. Juve as, as well. You can, you can go through the list. So it, it brings, the memories come flooding back for those who already have some kind of bond with it from a from a previous life i think that's absolutely right other than a a consistent stream of napoli away kits (laughs) yeah but they're also good i I, i'd take issue with all but i take your point i think the the camouflage one and the metallic looking one i own the camouflage one do you you admittedly a knockoff 
But why did you not buy the Diego Maradona inspired fourth kit from last? Because there was a pandemic, and you know, Steve, that I have very been very cross about my inability to go to Italy for seven, for two years now, and feel genuinely like it's ruining my life. Well, they, um, but you know what? Rory, but otherwise, I would have bought a knockoff, Steve. I'm not going to lie to you. I would have bought a ten euro knockoff from a, from a market store. But your 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 mock rage there also brings us onto another thing. We like Italian things. Yep. We like their brands. We like their style. We really, really like their food. And they make pretty good beer and wine as well. So there's lots of things about Italy. And their, their weather's pretty tremendous. Mm-hmm. So there's lots of things about Italy that we like. So why would we not like their football? Well, so that, that, that is, that's a really interesting point. That part, part of what has driven, I think, the, the, the boom in, in interest in football in the States, and I'm conscious we've got quite a lot of American listeners who I am about to offend... <laughs> is, that there, is that there is a degree of kind of europhilia attached to it that it's a, it's a signifier to an extent of saying uh, my horizons are broader it, it it caught on particularly people of, of mexican or central american extraction living in the states who um who had their traditional kind of familial ties to clubs in in that part of the world i think a lot of the reason it's caught on in elsewhere is to do with soccer being seen as as a mark of sophistication almost that if you're interested in soccer then there is a chance that then that, that's a way of indicating to people that you are a little bit more refined and it never occurred to me but i think it, Italy, italian football probably performs the same function in england or certainly did for a while and part of that will be related to the fact that we we ultimately associate italy with sophistication in all spheres you know that there is a it is we perceive it to be a classy country and you know we we don't think of you know big housing projects in milan and and turin we think of like cobbled town squares and sipping coffee with a copy of Gazzetta della sport which is the james richardson influence mm-hmm. of, of how we've seen how we, we our generation largely male i suspect has come to see italy um but there's no question that yeah we do, we are well disposed towards the exoticism and glamour of italy as a whole and that uh, that that bled through certainly in the 90s to its football and probably still holds a little bit now. But what's interesting is that the flip side of that is that the stereotype that Italian football is inherently boring has still held. That that has always been held to be... It was That was seen as true when it was when it was popular because it was on Channel 4, that we thought this is high-quality football, but it's really dull, or it's very defensive, at least, and cynical. I think the fact that that has held, even as it has become patently untrue, says a lot about the way that we consume and interact with football. So you're effectively saying, Rory, that in, if, for all the reasons that Italian football is so evocative to us, and therefore we are drawn towards it, that also it remains shackled by its reputation when we were first exposed to a large amount of it. Yeah, but except I think that reputation, that definitely predates... Gazetta and James Richardson and right. Attilio Lombardo dancing the Lombarda. It that that so reputation that for <laughs> that it's, reputation it's a, it's a for defensiveness goes back certainly to Elenio Herrera and an Inter in the in the fifties and sixties, and probably to Nereo Rocco and Milan and the the Swiss Bolt in the late twenties. It's it's a version of it's a version of the sophistication though, isn't it? It's if to 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 be sophisticated in an Italian way is to be structured and suits cut perfectly. You know that's the that's the quintessential way of defining what the Italian sophistication is in that field. So perhaps you can understand it, that it it at least came about or at least fit into the stereotype that we had 
kind of understood within ourselves about Italian life and, and society anyway. It's just that, that, that version of it. It's not the Italian flair and style is not the flair and style of, of a South American. It, the, the, the Italian flair and style, it, it plays to a stereotype and it may or may not be true. And it certainly isn't true about the football anymore, but it, it is to be sophisticated. And so sophisticated football surely is the Italian football that we now probably wrongly apply to it. Yeah, that that's a really good point. That that is definitely it feels like it is the flip side to to the to the to the word sophistication that we understood Italian football to be sophisticated, in the sense that a sort of a tax avoidance scheme is sophisticated. It's it's not. It's it was it was complex, and what, I think in the nineties, what really struck you about watching Italian football was that it was it was complex. That it, things happened on the pitch that you didn't really see in England, as in England, everyone was busy chasing the ball. It felt like watching grown-up football. But then in you a still that, had George Ware running running through 150. There is different... so much terrible <laughs> defending in that George Ware goal against Verona. Yeah. yeah, like I mean, it's awful defending. Where is the Fernandinho committing the tactical foul? <laughs> That's what I want to know. But that that actually is the other thing that I think is really relevant here. Is Italian football has changed? It has become looser. I think Steve would go along with that. I'm looking to Steve for for authority. Yeah. Well, and yeah, well, and when did that start as well, Steve? Was it was it Sari? Was Maurizio Sari's Napoli? Was that like the berserker uh, that that kind of others have followed, or was he a product of, of stuff that had been happening before? Don't don't throw a man under the bus, Hugh, who <laughs> routinely reminds everybody that I watch, I commentate on a game, and have forgotten about it within. <laughs> I was about to say 24 hours, but very often 24 minutes. I think what it is, we've spoken previously um, about the tactical innovations that have come in from elsewhere across Europe and the world to the Premier League. And I think during that episode, we gave particular praise to the influence of Italian coaches. And probably what we have seen over the course of the last few years, just going back to that point, that there seems to be a greater number of attacking talents young emerging vibrant forward-thinking players than there are their defensive equivalents that what we're seeing is as Rory has talked about you know the complex sophisticated coaching methods is that simply the coaches there and you pick out Giampiero Gasparini at Atalanta for example has worked out very quickly that the best way to go about winning games is to utilize those strengths rather than try and reflect upon historical strengths as as the platform and and as they always have been they've been incredibly innovative and at the moment they are innovating to the the caliber of the players that they have to their disposals and they've seen that that can be as Atalanta have done in terms of regularly getting into the Champions League a much better way of punching above their weight than being perhaps more conservative as we might have seen in the past. I think there's a few different things at play. So that Steve t- touches on the quality of player available. The quality of player in the Serie A is lower than in the Premier League overall. And I think it's probably lower than in La Liga, maybe on average, I'm not sure. The, the fact that the teams are flawed is what makes games exciting. There's, we will at some point, presumably in our lives, discuss the issue of whether Manchester City are interesting or not from a purely kind of spec. Spect- spectacle-related point of view. Um, I think there's no question that perfection, which City are you know, regularly hit, if we're all completely honest, City are regularly pretty much a perfect football team. It's not that interesting to watch unless you are emotionally connected to that football team because 
like great yeah you're perfect you are perfect you are infinitely better than this, this opposition there's no contest there's no jeopardy in italy they benefit from the fact that all the teams are flawed in some way so you get a load of mistakes which means there's goals which means there is or not even that it means it means there are spaces to exploit and there are opportunities to to take um i think there has been a tactical shift as well that predates sarri there's there's different strands to it one is that Juve certainly, if you look at the, the stupid decision initially to, to get rid of Allegri and replace him with Sarri and then Pirlo, there was a recognition both that you had to play attractive football, attractive and in inverted commas football to, to attract big stars and to attract big audiences and to be a big hitter. I also think that Juventus genuinely believed that you had to play attractive football to win the Champions League, that there, that, that was the best recipe for success in Europe. Whether that was right or not, I don't know, but that, that was definitely a thing. And maybe also Pro- Rory to play attractive football to justify their dominance. That it was and, possibly, and their, yeah. yeah. And their yeah. badge change as well. And their badge change and they're, they're, they're branching out into being a lifestyle brand. Yes, that, Steve, that's a really good point. I think that they maybe felt that just winning the league wasn't enough anymore under Allegri, whereas it had been under Conte. Um, that changed things from the top down, I think the bottom up, you look at coaches like Roberto De Zerbi, who's at Shakhtar now, or was at Shakhtar, he might have been sacked, everyone gets sacked at Shakhtar, um, at Sassuolo, playing attractive football, Gasparini to an extent, Sarri, at, certainly at um, Empoli, and then at Napoli, if not so much at, at, at Juventus. And but Na- Napoli playing exciting football predated Sarri. Well, that's what I was going to say, so I actually think that the tactical shift goes back before that, where the emphasis was on attack, to, to teams like Spalletti's Roma, who were good to watch. They were a good team to watch. You know, that, that Spalletti at Roma who invented the false nine. What, rather than Guardiola and Messi, it was Totti who was the first false nine because Roma ran out of strikers. So Totti played... Up, Totti ran out of legs. And Totti ran out of legs, so they just let him sort of wander about up front. That was kind of mid-2000s. I think they, they got smashed at Old Trafford in 2007, didn't they, Roma? So I think they, they, had, they were already by then starting to break that mould of... And bear in mind, that's 2007 when, when Milan... W- won the Champions League, playing a very Italian style, albeit with Dakar in in full pomp. So I think that the shift has been has been in place now for 15 years, and that, I guess, is why I find it so interesting that the stereotype hasn't changed at all. But I want to offer you a theory as to why that might be. And it is not a theory that will hold water, but it is a theory that I might be able to eat 1,200 words out of. And that's I was going to say, this is the non-paywall version. This so, is the uh... non-paywall version. <laughs> We've eaten 45 minutes of a podcast out of it, Rory, so there's no reason why you shouldn't get words out of it. I wonder whether at least some of it... Italian football has changed, but I don't think it's changed as fast as English football. And I think English football now contains a lot of the elements that when we saw them in Italy in the 1990s, we associated with being boring or sophisticated, depending on your perspective. That that effectively, maybe Italian football was never boring. Maybe we just didn't understand what we were seeing, but now we do. It's the the kind of mic drop moment that... um forces us to not really discuss anything further if i can leave you both completely speechless then i have done my job uh, keep your correspondence coming to setpiecemenu at gmail.com please subscribe share rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find me for us in your podcast schedule thank you to Stephen and to rory and to you all for listening we'll be back with another set piece menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed and one of the great things about italians of course is not only the sophistication of fashion the sophistication of catenaccio but also the sophistication of art and rory who hates poetry is now going to like one piece of poetry because during that conversation he also managed to drum up a little ditty i was i was honored when you were scribbling away whilst i was speaking 
thinking. Oh, I was oh, writing. God, I'm coming up with some great stuff here. This is going to include it in this. I might even it might even be attributed to me. No, but no, never. The I mean, I, I listened to every word, Steve. Obviously, I was I was agog. But I also like to prove how easy it is to write poetry and make people think it's not terrible. Because that's the problem with poetry, that it, if, even if it's terrible, if you read it in the right way, people think it's, it's full of wisdom. Do you want me to do this in English or Italian? <laughs> uh, well, are, are you going to do both versions eventually? Or are you going to do the Italian first? No, do it in, I, I, that, do it in Italian, I've, then I've, do it in English, and, and Hugh will edit it so that you're basically translating your own poem. I've made myself <laughs> not look like a dick. I think I'd struggle with some of the words. I don't know what the word yoke is, as in... Um, thing that restrains you not in egg. Italian no the, the, yeah not not yet not right, an okay. egg so it's not written in Italian no it's written in English right just, okay then just, just do my it Italian's not that good anyway right, okay. so this is um this is I call this summer 2020 2021 English man full of coke shaking off the working yoke storms the gate full of hate bribes a steward arriving late sweet Caroline early goal as smoke billows from his hole. <laughs> That's a good poem. I definitely, uh, shall, can I go in, shall I go get my Italian neighbour to come and do the <laughs> translation? Well, I could do a bit of it. So it's, Uomo inglese, pieno di cocaina. It won't rhyme, but then I can't do the rest. 